Hello and welcome to The Hated and the Dead with Tom Lehman. In a world which even to the casual observer seems so dangerous and unpredictable as that of 2023, there is often a tendency to look upon some imagined past, 10, 20 or 30 years prior, as safer and easier to understand. The events of March 2003, 20 years ago as I speak, shatter that illusion for this month marks the 20th anniversary of the US-led invasion of Iraq. The purpose of that mission was to rid the world of today's subject, Saddam Hussein, who had been president of Iraq since 1979. The 2003 invasion, and the lead-up to it, represents how poorly figures at the top of government can understand their counterparts and the countries they lead. The US did not understand Iraq well at all, but an important second part to that statement that is often glossed over is that Saddam really didn't understand the US either. If he had, he or his regime might still be in charge of Iraq today. Much of the Iraq coverage over the last few weeks has focused on dubious claims about weapons of mass destruction and the circumstances leading up to the war in the crucial autumn of 2002. Whilst this is interesting and important, I want to focus on the longer picture of the war here, both long before and after the invasion occurred, to ascertain what happens when you remove a man who has been in control of a fractious nation for a quarter of a century. This doesn't just tell us about the power dynamics of Iraq, but also begins to shed light on exactly when Saddam became a marked man. The Iraq war was the result of poor decisions made at certain points by Saddam himself and senior figures in the Bush administration but it was also the result of decisions not being made at crucial points by other people. Decisions that, if they had been made, might have meant Saddam was out of power long before 2003. I also hope that this episode gives people a better sense of what Iraq is like 20 years on from the war, a part of the story often not considered enough, and a clearer picture of where US foreign policy lies today. The US is still haunted by Iraq 20 years on, and in this sense, the war cannot be seen as separate or removed from the world we live in today. On the contrary, the world power dynamics of 2023 were forged there. My guest for this conversation is Shadi Hamid. Shadi is a senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institute. He has also written various books about the Middle East, including The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and the rise and fall of an idea, which was released in October. Shadi's perspective on what happened after 2003 is nuanced in a debate which has been severely lacking that quality, and may challenge those of you with particularly negative feelings towards the war. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce Saddam Hussein. Hi Shadi, how are you? Hi Tom. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Shadi, we're talking about Saddam Hussein today. Uh, he was the president of Iraq from 1979 until his removal by Western forces in 2003. That removal started 20 years ago this month. As people go about their business, people who are interested in politics, Shadi, um, in what is it? still an extremely chaotic world, perhaps an even more chaotic world than it was in 2003. 
Why should people pause over the next few days to reflect on the Iraq war? So in my view, the Iraq war was the most consequential political event of my, I think it's fair to say my adult life. I suppose a case could be made for 9-11, although the two events are obviously related in ways that we can talk about, that one wouldn't have happened without the other, that the attacks of 9-11 made possible what happened subsequently and created a sort of chain, a chain of events. Um, and it, it was the most consequential event because not just what happened in the war itself, but for, again, what it led to afterwards. And understanding the aftermath in that sense is quite important. It was obviously a very long engagement in terms of the U.S. Um, the U.S. presence in Iraq, and it defined American politics for a number of years, and then it sort of dwindled from the headlines, but was still there as a kind of background force in our imagination as Americans, but also more broadly, that the ghosts of the Iraq War, if you will, were still with us, and we were still trying to learn lessons from it, or perhaps not learn lessons from it and avoid a reckoning with what what it meant and what it led us as Americans to do. I mean, obviously, I have my own biases on this. I was very involved in the anti-war movement um, in 2003 as a college student and was quite active in organizing various events and participating in rallies at the White House and elsewhere. So I was one of those people who was shaped by it because it was part of my formative political experience. I was relatively young and impressionable and trying to find my way and find my identity. And 9-11 and then the Iraq War shaped me in this fundamental way. And quite honestly, I wouldn't even be talking to you right now if it wasn't for 9-11 to start with. I don't think I would have taken the course that my life has taken it because these events politicized me and they made me care about politics in a way that would define my, my future trajectory. If we turn to talking about Saddam, he was born in 1937 near the city of Tikrit. His was a pretty sordid upbringing by all accounts. Yeah. And you know, it's it's possible to psychoanalyze and to try to draw links between Saddam's early life and what he later became. You know, for example, um, being being beaten by his stepfather and, and that sort of thing, and just having a generally unhappy childhood. But obviously, a lot of people have sordid upbringings and don't have a strong desire to be dictators. But obviously, he's someone who was hardened and coarse in his approach. And there's any number of anecdotes and stories about Saddam's just general lack of compassion and human sentiment, almost as if he didn't feel things that other people felt. I mean, I, I can't, you know, make judgments on his psychological state, um, but certainly elements of psychopathic behavior. 
that seem to appear at a relatively young age and a kind of comfort with violence, a desire for it, or maybe to put it differently, an indifference to the violence inflicted on others. And with many dictators, you see signs of this, um, you know, as they become adults and as they start to become politically active. And of course, Saddam came of age in what would have been a more revolutionary environment where a lot of things were in flux. I mean, the nation state, at least in the Arab world, was relatively recent. And these new, these new states and societies with ideas of citizenship that are being developed in real time, like what does it mean to be an Iraqi? What does it mean to be an Egyptian? Questions that had a kind of clarity only then that they wouldn't have had, you know, two centuries ago. And that's just worth keeping in mind that when we try to understand what went wrong with a particular individual, we have to connect the variables and the psychological state and uh, the, the wounds of childhood are there, but then they have to interact with other variables. And when the two come together or the three or the four, then you have a kind of unlikely confluence of events. Nothing is foreordained. It didn't have to be this way, but it did turn out to be that way and to our detriment, of course. So given that sort of the confluence of different traits and different factors, both within Iraqi politics and within Saddam's own life, how would you characterize his ascent through politics? Saddam rises to power um, in a time when you have a lot of these secular socialist leaders. This is the dominant ideological orientation in the Middle East at the time, and of course, exemplified most strongly and perhaps even impressively by Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt, at least before the 1967 war in which the Egyptian forces were destroyed in, as the name of the war suggests, in six days. So until then, this is really where the currents are going. And that might be hard for today's listeners to get their head around, because now we associate the Middle East with Islamism as the dominant ideological orientation. Um, but it wasn't always, it wasn't always that way. And so you have a lot of, you have various revolutionary movements, coups, and military officers who are taking matters into their own hands. The state in most of these countries is relatively weak. So again, we, we shouldn't think about the current Arab state, um, at least outside the context of civil war. You have, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Egypt, um, Jordan, and so forth, states that are consolidated, that are um, you know strong in a way they wouldn't have been in the 1960s. And the 1950s and 60s are really a time uh, going into the late 70s where you have a lot of quick changes of power and um, a lot of a lot of shifts. And so Saddam came to power um, as part of a military coup in 1968 and spent the 70s, being an extremely powerful force. Um, first, he was vice president under a leader who was quite a bit older, and he was able to 
take the reins of various security forces and be someone who was really focused on this question of consolidating this consolidating the dominance of the Iraqi Ba'ath Party. So this was a kind of form of, uh, let's say, you know, socialist nationalism with its own particular spin. Um, there was also Syrian Ba'ath Party, which um, the Assad family um, was a part of. And these are basically revolutionary socialist movements that are inherently authoritarian uh, and they see authoritarianism as part of their raison d'etre. Saddam uh, finally becomes the formal head of the Iraqi government in um, 1979. And it's interesting to note that because 1979 is a year when a lot of things were in flux. Again, I, you know, it's hard to imagine a year that could, could have been, that can be quite like 1979 was where you have the Iranian revolution, you have the siege of Mecca. The fact that you would have two revolutions in, or not revolutions, but two kind of um, dramatic formal shifts in power in Iraq and Iran at the same time. And of course, later on, Iraq and Iran would be engaged in a civil war throughout the 80s. So hopefully that gives some context as to what the general political vibe would have been like in many of these countries, very fluid and very much about which military officers were able to consolidate control against other military officers. And also at this point too, there's a lot of revolutionary sentiment coming from other leftist and socialist actors. So just because the Ba'ath Party was at least in theory leftist in orientation or socialist in orientation, um, the divides within the, the camp of the left could be quite stark. Um, and this is where other leftist forces, um, the Communist Party, for example, in Iraq and, and others had to be suppressed, at least from the point of view of Saddam and the regime. Um, everyone had to be suppressed because the Ba'ath Party was seen as, in some sense, the guardian of the state. This new Iraqi state was being built and the Ba'ath Party was, in a sense, intertwined with the state, but also a kind of partisan representation of the state. No real separation. It was the um, the arm the arm of this new Iraqi state that was being built. And if that's how you see the state, then of course anyone who challenges you, regardless of their ideological orientation, is not just a threat to the Ba'ath Party, but is a threat to the entire. Iraqi national project. I mean, the the takeover of the Ba'ath Party by Saddam in 1979 is almost legendary now, really, because it, in part, because it was filmed, and you yeah. can see the absolute untrammeled terror of the people who are about to be murdered by Saddam's regime in the in the video. It's on YouTube, and this was the end of quite a long culmination of power, as you said, across or throughout the 1970s by Saddam. If you look at the 1980s and 90s, which were his f two full decades in power, what would you say that his strengths as a leader were? All powerful leaders have personal strengths that make them the leaders they are. What do you think was Saddam's? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating question because, you know, it's always hard to think about 
evil people and to think what was most compelling about them and what could have made them at the time appealing, at least to a significant number of followers. I mean, I wouldn't want to overstate how popular Saddam was, um, and it would be impossible to know for sure, but certainly he he did have a, lo a loyal base um, and a and a strong and, and wide enough base of support to sustain himself. I mean, some of that started to, um, to fracture later on, but certainly in the beginning, I think it's fair to describe him as a popular, a popular leader. And of course, um, you know, if there is a socialist military man who takes power and appears to be somewhat, um, charismatic and has a kind of force of nature, you know, we as human beings can find that attractive. Um, perhaps not not despite the terror that the leader inflicts, but because of it, there's something awe-inspiring about that kind of terror. And I don't, I mean that in the sense that he, you're able to elicit awe and even deference uh, precisely because of these dramatic acts of brutality and vengeance and it's just something we have to be frank about when we try to understand human motivation um but someone who was you know in some ways the last the last the last big prominent supposedly arab nationalist because as i mentioned starting in 67 we see these currents become you know starting to weaken and saddam portrayed himself as the last man standing, the one who was going to stand up against the West and the one who was going to still defend some sort of idea of the Arab nation and then support other Arab causes. And certainly Saddam was supportive in various ways and not to say that the support was positive, but the Palestinian cause was central, central to his foreign policy and how he presented himself as a defender of of the Palestinians. And even I remember in the 2000s, during and after the Iraq war, that some on the far left, who were otherwise, you know, correct, I think, in pr protesting the war, there was always a risk of falling into this idea that Saddam was a vehicle for anti-imperialism and that he was the last one really prioritizing that. And therefore you, people would ask the question, well, why is the U S targeting this person in particular, as opposed to the other, um, and quite, quite numerous Arab dictators. So yeah. that his ability to present himself that way, um, is certainly up there. And Iraq was also developing quite, quite rapidly and even impressively by some metrics in the 1980s and how much we want to attribute that to Saddam Hussein himself. But certainly there was a correlation there that Iraq had made impressive strides on literacy, on moving towards universal, universal um, public education, um, certainly on, on aspects of women's empowerment Again, the metrics would suggest that Saddam made some strides there as well. And again, these were all things that people would say in retrospect that as brutal as Saddam was, Iraq was a modern a modernizing state that was advancing 
in economic and technological terms. And of course, I'm someone who doesn't believe that you can really separate material outcomes from brutality. Like you can't just say, well, oh, the Iraqi education system was pretty good relative to other countries in the region. And somehow we have to accept that as one of the costs of doing business that, you know, he's, he's brutal, but he also, he also gave us this, or he also gave the region this. You have these two immensely bloody invasions of Iran and Kuwait. Why do you think Saddam decided to invade two of his neighbours? Was he an irredentist? Did they maybe coincide with times when the economy wasn't doing so well and he wanted to sort of drum up support from ordinary Iraqis? What do you think explains this? Yeah, well, so, you know, certainly wars of choice become more possible when you have distinct personalities at the top. And there's also a sense of Saddam always having been erratic, that he was prone to violent outbursts. And again, I mean, some of the stories about how he would punish opponents and hold grudges and be very personally involved in in acts of brutality or authorizing them suggests that he wasn't he wasn't someone who was interested in institutionalizing a party beyond his own force of charismatic personality there was a bath party but ultimately Saddam was going to be the vehicle for everything relating to the development of the Iraqi state. And I think what that leads to is adventurism. And if you have one person who's able to make these decisions surrounded by a group of sycophants, then you can make very drastic decisions that are ill-considered and you don't have checks and balances within your institutional structure that can put brakes on it or question the wisdom of some of this. And in the Iraq-Iran war um, in the 1980s, there were a number of times where either side could have made different decisions and prevented the war from going on as long as it did. Um, but again, you know, when, a pers- when personalities are involved, but also a sense of honor and the idea that force has to be demonstrated and that backing down is itself an admission of weakness. And again, we don't need to psycholo- psychologize too much about how um, about you know the shame, you know shame and victory, and how these things are maybe intertwined in certain Middle East examples. But certainly, that is something we see in war, war more broadly. It was probably accentuated in the case of Saddam because of his erratic personality and so when we talk about the kuwait war the the, the gulf war or the first uh, first gulf war and the invasion on kuwait um obviously that was a much more drastic miscalculation than the iran iraq war of the 1980s where you know saddam wasn't obviously fatally weakened by that and in fact you know, you can always have a rally around the flag effect, especially if you're not defeated. Um, And the fact that that war didn't conclude with a clear victor allowed both leaders, Khomeini in Iran and Saddam in Iraq, to 
claim some kind of victory, right? Of course, the invasion of Kuwait did not end that way. And that was because of a miscalculation that Saddam made where he did not expect the U.S. and its allies to respond with that level of commitment and decisiveness to kind of see it all the way through and to basically take take Saddam out of Kuwait specifically and to use the might of military force to do so. So there was that was not something that Saddam anticipated, um, and he made a mis- miscalculation in that respect. Was perhaps one of the reasons that he did make that miscalculation was that in the Iran-Iraq war, at least nominally, the US had been relatively friendly towards him. Yeah, there's that famous picture of Donald Rumsfeld uh, shaking hands with Saddam, and that was used a lot, um, you know, during, you know, people who were opposing the Iraq war were obviously pointing to this, this sort of ironic shift. But um, yeah, certainly the US, as it often does in the Middle East, it is willing to ally even for brief periods of time with very bad actors. If US policymakers decide the enemy of my enemy is my friend, or maybe the enemy of my enemy is not a friend per se, but at least someone who should be indulged and accommodated, at least for a certain period of time. And this is where the kind of balance of power politics that the U.S. has often advocate, often promoted in the Middle East is, is dangerous because it puts different sides against each other in ways that are not based on any kind of coherent principle. So sometimes, you know, you're more you're more accommodating of Iran because, you know, you want them to be a little a little bit stronger vis-a-vis Saddam and and this kind of balancing, and then obviously vice versa. You see Saddam's Iraq as as a force to be accommodated because Iran becomes the greater evil at a particular moment. And I think the 1980s show that kind of incoherence in the Reagan administration's approach. Um, And obviously the Iran-Contra affair is part of that broader story. But, you know, this is some pretty sordid stuff in terms of like fair weather friends and shifting alliances. And that also inevitably played a role in Iraq, sorry, in Saddam making a judgment in the lead up to his invasion of Kuwait that, you know, the U.S., could be appeased or they wouldn't go as far as they did because of that history in the 1980s. Why did the US not go into Iraq in 1991 after they had driven Saddam's forces out of Kuwait? Well, yeah, this is, I think, one of the great um, tragedies, let's say, of, of the first Gulf War is that at a time when Saddam had his back to a wall and was weakened tremendously, there was a Shia uprising and they were, the Shia rebel forces were moving towards Baghdad and Bush, the first Bush had made a number of statements encouraging the Iraqi people to continue this uprising and to in effect finish the job that you know, this is a time for change and they should, you know, they should do what they have to do. And there was a profound sense of betrayal when Shia rebel forces, but also 
um, the Kurdish opposition who were, um, you know, who were trying to oust Saddam from power uh, did not get U.S. support at the key moment of truth and were not able to continue their march towards Baghdad. And I think critics of the first Bush administration, and I've made this criticism myself, this was a fatal flaw. Um, and perhaps we didn't know this at the time because we didn't know that there would be a second Gulf War the following decade. But the Iraq War in 2003 was in part about unfinished business. It was about the fact that Saddam had stayed in power and had presumably become more of a mortal threat to the region. But if if Bush the father had actually seen things to their very end and supported the different opposition factions against Saddam, Saddam, you know, could have potentially been out of out of power or dead as early as 1992. Now, that didn't happen and we have to live with the consequences of that and also the sense of betrayal and that became a recurring story, uh, speaking to you know Kurdish activists or Shia activists who had to actually put their lives in the lo- on the line and suffer. The fact that they believed in the U.S. for good reason, only to have their expectations shattered. That is a story not of tragedy, just tragedy, but also of betrayal and this question of whether the U.S. could be counted on to live up to its promise, if you will. Um, and any number of pro-democracy activists or rebel groups that are fighting against dictatorship, for example, more recently in the Syrian civil war, this idea of the U.S. coming to their defense and believing, perhaps more than Americans themselves, that the U.S. could be brought in to do the right thing and to connect its policy and its military might with its pro-democracy statements or its anti-authoritarian statements. And of course, you know, we know how the story ends most of the time, which is, again, a sense of betrayal and a sense of, a sense of U.S. Unre- unreliability. And I don't want, you know, obviously there were many analysts who had this idea that Bush Jr., felt that he had to finish the job that his father couldn't. And there was some kind of um, whatever the fatherly version of an Oedipal complex is. I forget what that's called, but you know, again, do we want to psych, do, do we want to psychologize um, George W. Bush and, and wonder about how much that played a role in his decision to invade? You know, we could, and perhaps some of this plays a role along the margins, but certainly there is this, there is a kind of like Shakespearean narrative arc that I think is at least interesting to think about and also to think about counterfactual histories that if certain things had turned out differently at certain moments, the world today could have looked very different. In other words, there wouldn't have been a second Iraq war. I suppose just as well, it would have been so much easier to deal with the post-Saddam Iraq without or before 9-11 turned up the pressure cooker on all of these issues. I mean, the result of not going into Iraq in 1991 was a a kind of botched policy of containment, really, of of sanctions, principally. Um, 
And we should note that this the, the sanctions regime against Iraq um, was devastating. Yes. And, you know, people might have trouble remembering it now because it's no longer one of the litany of grievances that's cited against the U.S. But in the in particularly in the late 90s going into the 2000s, the list included sanctions against Iraq and the devastating human toll that that cause. And then, of course, you know, Palestine would be their support for authoritarian regimes, but Iraq would always register quite high. And there was a lot of attention paid to how the sanctions policy, and also there was a famous statement from then Secretary of State Madeleine Albright when a, a questioner asked her, um, you know, was it worth it, i.e. referring to the sanctions against Iraq under Saddam, and I, I believe the questioner, you know, was talking about the the human toll, and she said something to the effect, and I paraphrase, like it was worth it. And um, it was things like that that I think are kind of forgotten when we look back at U.S. engagement in the Middle East, but at the time were I think pretty powerful statements of a kind of indifference to to, um, you know, just Arab suffering, but that continues to this day when it comes to Middle East policy. So I think it just, some of this context is is just worth recalling. For sure. Madeleine Albright was Bill Clinton's Secretary of State. Um, George W. Bush, Bush uh, Jr. Uh, won the presidency in 2000, took office in January 2001, and of course then comes 9-11 um, in September of that year the 9-11 attacks perpetrated by al-Qaeda. How far do we know that there were links between Saddam and al-Qaeda? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. I just wanted to share the exact quote because it's actually worse than I remembered from Madeleine Albright. And I should say, look, people say the wrong things over the course of a long career and she shouldn't be judged just based on what she said in this particular moment. But you know, it is still worth noting where, yeah, it was actually Leslie Stahl um, in a 60 Minutes interview. Um, So the question was this that was posed to Madeleine Albright. We have heard that half a million children have died, referring to Iraqi children here. And then she says, I mean, that is more children than died in Hiroshima. And is the price worth it? So that's the question posed. Albright answers, quote unquote, I think that is a very hard choice, but the price we think is worth it. So it's worse. Okay. I'm glad I actually checked that because that's actually a little bit more um, explicit than than I remembered. Um, But to go to your question about the relationship between 9-11 and the Iraq war, obviously these two events, they are tied together knowing what we know now because- 9-11 made the Iraq war possible, Uh, you know, so-called neoconservatives, but also others like Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, who were part of this group, but I don't think it's fair to call them neoconservatives because they weren't, that wasn't their ideological orientation. If we want to have more clarity about the neoconservative intellectual legacy, but certainly there was an effort in the late nineties to really have this hawkish approach to Iraq, which even Democrats supported and and President Bill Clinton, the Iraq Liberation Act is, you know, one vestige of that. And 
Then later on, there was a project for a new American century that many senior Bush administration officials were in. They they wanted to get rid of Saddam and they had given it a lot of thought, but there had to be some kind of enabling event that created the space and popular support for them to actually have a realistic chance of seeing this through. And that's what 9-11 offered. So it's not as if not 9-11 is better seen as a, a catalyst for something that a certain group of people wanted anyway, and had actually given quite a lot of thought to. Now, of course, they hadn't given a lot of thought to the aftermath. And there was a lot of um, ideological, you know, ideological blind spots when it came to this idea that if you just get rid of the dictator, then good things will happen. And some of it was actually quite endearing, this idea that, you know, once people have a taste of freedom, they'll make good choices. And the only thing preventing them from making good choices is the iron fist of a dictator. And of course, it's more complicated than that, as we found out. And then there was the specific effort on the part of senior Bush administration officials to imply, but more than imply, direct links between Saddam Hussein and terrorist activities in the region, broadly, but all and some of that included um, Al-Qaeda's presence in various countries um, and giving sanctuary, you know, sanctuary to certain leaders at certain times and that sort of thing. And a lot of that turned out to be um, inaccurate um, or certainly wildly exaggerated. But that was used at the time. And again, like I'm trying to like remember, uh, you know, trying to remember how that how that felt to me at the time. I definitely remember it being quite prominent in the public debate. Again, it's sort of weird to think about it now because no one really talks about those links anymore. And and the, and the people who promoted that, the, the Bush administration officials, of course, don't tend to mention how much they emphasize that. And if we look at the various memoirs of Bush administration officials, when they try to contextualize their decision to invade um, obviously, there's quite a bit of revisionist history. And even to this day, Paul Bremer, who has been writing and speaking on the 20th anniversary, and he was um, the head of the coalition provisional authority that was basically running the Iraqi uh, the occupation of Iraq. There is still this effort to contextualize and to diminish just how much dissembling and deception that there was in describing some of these links. And that was a key part of the brief for the case for going to war. And even Secretary of State Colin Powell in the famous you know, speech to the UN, you know, there was a long list of long list of uh, grievances and this was one of them. The ultimate sort of kicker that the Bush administration deployed to persuade, and also Tony Blair in this country, that the two leaders deployed to ensure that there was sufficient support for this was the allegation that Saddam had either built or was building weapons of mass destruction. There were some very truncated attempts to find a diplomatic situation to this after September the 11th, 2001, especially in two, early 2002. Do you think a diplomatic situation could have been found to this, even if the Bush administration, you know, wanted one, which they didn't. Was it was one actually available? 
Okay, so the situation there, there was a pretext of trying to find a diplomatic solution. So the Iraq War um, Authorization Act passed in the U.S. in October 2022, which was quite early, considering that the invasion started in March. So there was this gap where there was a pretense to finding non-military solutions. But the October resolution did authorize, I mean, as the as the name of the bill would suggest, did authorize military force. So in some sense, it was decided then. And then the, the Bush administration had the freedom and the room to then, you know, make its own decision about when and how it wanted to launch this military action against Saddam. And there does seem to be quite a bit of evidence that they were never, that they weren't, that the, the efforts were never sincere. These diplomatic efforts were almost designed to fail, or they had to meet such a high threshold that it was simply it was simply self evident that Saddam would not meet at least you know anything close to the letter of 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 the demands that the Bush administration and allies were putting forward. So, in some ways, I think it's important to view the Iraq War as something that had built over a somewhat significant period of time in terms of preparing the public to think a certain way about it, and then to implant these ideas that became quite popular, including in mainstream publications like the New York Times and the Post, that bought into many of these false narratives about weapons of mass destruction, um, and also the links between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. And so that's why popular opinion, by a certain point, um, it had always been hovering around uh, the high 50s for much of 2002. But then you start to see after the October resolution going into March 2003, it keeps on rising and rising. And I believe it it got as high as 70% or so around March 20th or 21st, the first couple days of the invasion in 2003. You have not a cons- not like a unanimous consensus, but you have a large majority of Americans, according to the available polling, who were persuaded by the arguments. And it is a whole different conversation about how people fell into line. They did. And it's also worth noting that the October resolution authorizing military force against Iraq passed by a large margin. Yeah, it was seven. uh, The vote, I believe, was 77 to 23 in the Senate, which means uh, which means that 29 out of the 50 Democratic senators, so clear majority of Democrats even, were for the war when it mattered. So in that sense, it's not just the Bush administration that is orchestrating this, but really an elite consensus in Washington, D.C. that included the most prominent and influential Democrats in the Senate. I was reading John Nixon's book on the interrogation of Saddam Hussein recently. Hmm. Saddam's government sort of folded like a deck chair in 2003, largely because of the weakness of its military, which had been exhibited quite strongly in 1991, and he was he disappeared 
and then he was found in December '03. Um, one of the things that comes out of reading that book is quite how surprised Saddam was that the Americans ever wanted to take him down. It was yep. his assumption that the Americans would see Iraq as quite an effective bulwark against Islamism. Um, was he? Well, he was a bulwark against Islamism in the sense that he repressed them. So, I mean, I mean, and killed them and tortured them. So certainly the Shia Islamist parties in particular were decimated under Saddam. And they did have quite a bit of popular support, at least latent popular support, because after Saddam fell, it was the Shia Islamist parties, and there were a number of them. There was the Dawah Party, um, Skiri, the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, and they were the ones who were able to do quite well in the first reasonably free elections and stayed in power for quite some time. I mean, Islamists were either a part of a coalition government or the lead party in coalition governments for quite a long time in Iraq. Um, and it was one of the first instances in an Arab country where Islamist parties were permitted to keep ruling after winning democratic elections for a significant period of time. Now, these are Shia Islamists, so they're not usually what people think of when they think of Islamist movements, but also the Iraqi Muslim Brotherhood was brutally suppressed uh, by Saddam as well. Now, um, yeah, the U.S. doesn't mind that sort of thing. You know, the, the U.S. has never been like a big fan of Islamist parties or Islamist groups. So that was probably a mis another miscalculation on the part of Saddam to think that this kind of brutality would, you know, give him a feather in his cap when, if anything, I mean, the U.S., you know, U.S. policymakers aren't like evil people as bad as they, as bad as they might be in policy terms. So they're not like waking up thinking to themselves, well, Saddam is like brutally repressing all of these Islamist parties, yay. So I think there's just also this sense that people can develop when they're cordoned off from reality about what the U.S. really wants and its intentions, but also I think a lack of ser a lack of recognizing America's seriousness once it starts moving towards the path of military action. The U.S. can oftentimes be bumbling and half-hearted. And there is a kind of ambiguity to like what they really want. But at certain moments, when the U.S. decides to use force, it's going to use overwhelming force. And once, that's once that deci decision is made, you're done. And again, this goes back to how Saddam underestimated the U.S. twice in different ways and for different reasons. And the fact that he could never fully absorb the idea that the Bush administration would go all the way against him, that surprise was always there. I mean, as you note um, in the interrogations, uh, you know, this is someone who was divorced from reality and couldn't really come to terms with what had happened to him. I think, Shadi, when you look at the sort of pre-invasion years as a whole, I want to try and look at Saddam's fate kind of in retrospect, now that we've discussed what happened. The Americans and the Brits certainly tried to create an air of inevitability about the demise of Saddam. Inevitability is a very murky topic in politics and international relations. Very few things, actually, I think, 
when it comes down to it are genuinely in- inevitable. Um, that said, though, do you think that given how hell-bent the Americans eventually were on removing him, do you think there was a point at which Saddam's removal became inevitable? And if you can, can you try and pinpoint to the closest you can what when that was? Yeah, well, I mean, once once the U.S. makes a decision to invade and the invasion begins, it's unclear what the alternative would have been. You know, um, the goal was, at least in part, to make sure Saddam was no longer doing what he had been doing, at least from their perception, what he was doing. So... You know, un- un- unless we look at it maybe from like a different date when things were still in flux, you know, there were still alternative histories available to us. But it's it seems like it was in some sense inevitable on March 20th, 2003, 20 years ago to the day that this would be the outcome for Saddam Hussein. Um. Now, but I definitely take your point that, you know, we usually use the word inevitable in retrospect, knowing what we know now. And of course, even the use of the word inevitable is really only used after we know. So in that sense, it's a little bit of a circular sort of thing. And, you know, oftentimes historians will grapple with this just as we grapple with anything that has to do with our memory of how things were at a particular point. Um, and hindsight is twenty twenty, but it's also hindsight is distorting. So everything that we talk about when we look back at the Iraq war and its aftermath, 20 years is a long time. So everything that we talk about, everything that you and I are saying and all the coverage there's been is distorted by hindsight. So in some sense, we can't really know for like, this is the way it is with all history. All history is interpretation. There is no perfect access to the way things were at the time they actually happened. I do want to examine two potential alternative histories. One involving Saddam being overthrown and one involving him not being overthrown. The post-invasion phase of the war, as we know it happened, and as it did happen, was absolutely disastrous. 600,000 Iraqis died over the course of the next eight or ten years. Considerable sectarian violence between Sunni and Shia militia groups in Iraq, um, which, as you have said, were sort of contained by Saddam. Could there have been... A, a successful post two thousand and three Iraq. Once Saddam was removed, what what could it have actually looked like? What could it have actually looked like if what? If Saddam had been removed, the Americans were still there after two thousand and three. Okay. Saddam was not. Was there a better outcome to what happened? I mean, I hope. Okay, so. yeah. If the U.S. was smarter, more prudent, and actually knew knew what it was doing. Well, there was the Future of Iraq project at the State Department, which did try to outline 
some of the post-invasion concerns and with a focus on stabilization and institution building and that sort of thing. And that was shelved. And so part of this does relate to internal divisions within the Bush administration where the State Department is sidelined. And Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, and the, and the so-called neocons really drive the process and do it in this obviously destructive way. And Paul Bremer, who we mentioned earlier, the head of the CPA, you know, made the really remarkable decision to disband the Iraqi army. And I think that's where you can point to one of the original sins. Of course, the original sin was the invasion itself. And then you could kind of go back and say the original sin was not quote unquote, finishing the job in the first Gulf War the decade prior. But that was one of the more disastrous decisions that was taken because what that meant is you had hundreds of thousands of young Iraqi men who no longer had clear and stable sources of support and employment and even just like a sense of, you know, honor, like not having a job can be humiliating, obviously. So they became potential spoilers and then they they became actual spoilers. And you had a large body of people from which to recruit if you were start trying to start um, a resistance group, you know, resisting uh, the U.S. occupation through military means. So that, you know, and we can go through all the litany of mistakes and miscalculations and short-sightedness and and so forth. that said, I would take a little bit of issue with the premise that I don't think we can quite say that Iraq is a disaster. Like, we use these words Iraq is a mess. It was all of the, you know, Iraq is terrible and look what happened and all of that. And when we talk about the hundreds of thousands killed, the U.S. does bear some responsibility, obviously, and, and primary responsibility in many ways. But I think there's a danger in absolving Iraqis themselves from what transpired, because when we talk about the number of Iraqi civilians who were killed, many of them were not killed directly by U.S. military force. They were killed in the civil war that resulted. And I think it just, it's a little bit more of a complicated picture than drawing a direct causal link between the U.S. and the neocons. And so when people say the U.S. killed all of these people, that isn't the full story. And this leads me to, I think, a broader point, which I hope won't be too controversial, which is Um, I think there's a strong case to be made, and I guess I'm making it right now, that the war was unjust, stupid, immoral, disastrous, illegal, all of those things um, I think are accurate. But that is not the same thing as saying that Iraq today is worse off than it was under Saddam. I would say the opposite. Iraq is better off today without Saddam. And we shouldn't look at post-2003 Iraq and just say this was just unmitigated badness across the board. No, I mean, there is something called Iraqi politics. It's a deeply flawed and partial democracy 
but Iraq is more democratic than almost every other Arab country. And that's worth remembering. There are political parties. There are contending viewpoints that are expressed in the public sphere. There has been alternation of power, not once, but several times. All of these things are worth just being aware of, but also Iraqis deserve some credit for not reverting to a complete, you know, Egypt reverted to a military dictatorship after the Arab Spring. That's the sort of thing that can often happen. Iraq did not. Obviously, it has faced civil war and insurgencies and the rise of ISIS and a corrupt um, political class and all of that. But there has there have been things that have been gained. And I'm not here to say like, I don't, was it worth it? I don't even know how we kind of adjudicate that from a moral perspective. No, because the consequence, like what Iraq is now has no bearing on the initial justifiability of the invasion. Because other then we're being consequentialists. If we say, well, oh, if Iraqis are somewhat better off now than they were 20 years ago, and therefore that retroactively justifies the war, that's that's a consequentialist approach to morality. And I, that's not how I think morality should operate in our own minds. So I think there's a way to have a middle ground on this. And I think that is something I'd want to emphasize. The war was wrong and unjust and, and destructive in any number of ways. But there is still something to preserve and to appreciate even about the Iraqi political system. The bar is low. So this is a relative statement, not an absolute statement, but relative to its neighbors, Iraq does hold some promise. I mean, one of the great proponents of the war at the time was Christopher Hitchens. Yep. And one of his main points in support of the war, even even many years after the war, uh, the invasion had happened was essentially that there was a dreadful misery coming Iraq's way anyway because Saddam was so horrible. The, the hundreds of thousands of deaths probably would have happened anyway because a terrible civil war would have come to would have come to Iraq eventually. In any case, if you look forward to something like the Arab Spring, and and this is my second hypothetical, if Saddam had still been in power by that stage. What do you think the Arab Spring in Iraq would have looked like? And especially if you if you take Saddam being in power alongside the rise of ISIS, how do you think that might have been? Yeah, I mean, there certainly would have been some kind of uprising um, and challenge to his authority, and you know, probably a pretty serious insurgency. And you know, I see it as probably being resembling what happened in Libya to some extent that you would have had a peaceful protest and then Saddam would have used brute force and then it would have moved on to a military confrontation between the regime and rebel groups. But I think that Christopher Hitchens' argument is it it's an intriguing one, but he's almost undermining his own case because if it was going to happen anyway, then why did it have to happen that way with the U.S. playing the primary role in a country it didn't really understand or make any effort to understand and didn't even plan for the aftermath of the invasion with? 
so if the Arab Spring was coming, then it would have came to Iraq. Now, I think that it's quite likely it would have been an absolute mess and there would have been ongoing civil war. Again, maybe something similar to not just Libya, but in this case, but also Syria, if we think about a more extended civil war and a more destructive one. But at least then the U.S. would have had the opportunity to intervene, but with just with just cause. It wouldn't have been on false pretenses. It wouldn't have strained relations with our allies and undermined U.S. credibility. And it wouldn't have tainted the, the word democracy and the words democracy promotion. I mean, all of these things were very costly legacies of the 2003 invasion. And the rise of Iran as a result, because there was a vacuum, Iran presses its advantage and so forth. All of these second and third order consequences of our decision to go in wouldn't have been there in quite the same way, even if we had decided to take military action against Saddam in the way we did with Gaddafi during the Arab Spring, which I actually probably would have supported. I mean, I'm still to this day... Um, I don't apologize for my position that the NATO intervention in Libya was right, moral, and justified. And I actually wrote a piece defending their original position in twenty in uh, twenty sixteen. So five years later, um, it was in Vox, and I think it was called something like um, "Everyone thinks th- the Libyan intervention was bad. Here's why they're wrong." in part because I'm not a consequentialist because so just because um, Libya descended into a civil war subsequently, that shouldn't have any bearing on the original decision because either something is moral at the time you make, you, you make the decision or it's not this idea that morality changes with the benefit of hindsight is a very slippery way of looking at right and wrong. Anyway, this is just to say that, Um, I think a much better course for America and its foreign policy and not being so distracted and bogged down in an endless war would have been to find other ways to undermine Saddam, non-military means. And then if if an Arab Spring was bound to happen, that it was going to happen, and then we could have made decisions at that point about how much we wanted to be involved in terms of supporting the opposition and so forth. But at least then it would have been coming from Iraqis themselves, and we would have been supporting an indigenous resistance to Saddam, and one that we hadn't been fashioning or creating through our own military power. Finally then, if you look at the war 20 years on, which is where we are now, do you think it's well understood as far as wars go? Wars are incredibly complex. There's not a single war I can hand on heart say I understand everything about it. Relative to other recent wars we've had of consequence, where do you put Iraq? Is it well understood? It's certainly well reported on and well covered. And I mean, there's been an endless number of books that go into quite minute detail about which decisions were made and why at particular points. And just thinking, uh, you know, one that I thought it still sticks with me to this day, and it has the appropriate title of Fiasco um, by uh, by Thomas, Rick, uh, Thomas Ricks. Yeah. 
so uh, there's been a lot of good stuff. And there were also a lot of Americans there. And there were also journalists who were embedded. And that by itself, you know, was obviously poses some kind of ethical questions about how you can cover a war somewhat objectively when you're literally embedded um, with the forces that you're covering. But, you know, we do have a lot of information and we do have a lot of reporting. And I think that it's up to people who care to sift through those accounts and understand it to the, the best of their ability. I think at this point, there's probably limited utility in dwelling. I mean, it's been dwelled on a lot. And I think it's hard to imagine minds being changed at this point. Like if you still thought the Iraq war it, 20 years later was ju- right and justified, any additional information is probably not going to change. You, you've made your decision. Like 20 years is a long time to hold on to a minor a minority position that is pretty unpopular in American public discourse, right? So I think the lessons are important and they're more broad and you don't necessarily have to be an expert on the war itself to draw certain lessons. But even people who know a lot and have studied this closely can overread the lessons of the last war. I mean, I think this was one of Obama's weaknesses he was so shaped by the Iraq war and his own sense of being correct when others weren't that it led to a kind of arrogance and a tendency to apply the lessons of Iraq, which was a specific case, to Syria, to Libya, to others, when those weren't comparable cases. Like Syria in particular was there was no reason to make Iraq war analogies because this was a case of an indigenous resistance where Syrians themselves took up arms against the Assad regime. So we would have been intervening if we did. If we had intervened against Assad, there would have been military action after a civil war had already happened, where Iraq was the precise reverse, that the U.S., Used launched a military invasion, and then there was a civil war. So I think there was a lot of this that was like lazy. And, you know, I think Americans in particular have trouble with analogies. Maybe it's just like a human problem. We try to see patterns, and that's good and laudable. But sometimes the patterns are misleading because we're comparing unlike things. So I don't know, like, can we ever really understand the hist- this recent history of the Iraq war and its aftermath in a way that is truly accurate? We're all going to be bringing in our own distortions and biases to the story because we want to find things in that history that confirm or disconfirm our, our prior convictions, which is maybe like a bit of a nihilistic and, you know, almost like you know, postmodernist thing to say, like, what is truth and what is reality? And everyone comes with their own biases. You know, in this case, it's true. That doesn't mean we can't make judgments and strong ones. But I think it does mean that any definitive judgment about the Iraq war will be compromised. That's a, that's a fascinating way to end it. <laughs> a very open way to end it as well. <laughs> um, Sh- Shadi, thank you very much. <laughs> if people want to find more of your work, where can you direct them to? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I have a recent book out. It's called The Problem of Democracy, 
America, the Middle East, and the rise and fall of an idea, which does relate to some of these broader questions about what the U.S. role in the Middle East should be and and what it means to support democracy abroad. Um, that's available at you know your favorite bookstore or Amazon or whatever. And then um, I have a Substack if people want some more regular fare um, at shadihamid.substack.com. And I also co-host a podcast called Wisdom of Crowds, which is available on your any of your favorite podcast platforms. Is, is that a deliberate inversion of Douglas Murray's book title? It's funny you mentioned that. Um, no. And I think the madness of crowds is actually a reverse, like a, a, a shift from a previous book, which was called the wisdom of crowds, but which is also like a long running idea. The idea that the more people that you have, they'll be less prone to making errors when you aggregate on a mass level. So it's a, it's a longstanding idea. We use it kind of ironically because, you know, me and my co don't necessarily believe in the wisdom of crowds, but we appreciate that people should make their own choices, even if we don't like them. So I'm very, you know, in that sense, I'm very deferential to the crowd. The crowd might suck, but they have the right to make their choices. And that's part of what democracy is about. Thank you, Shelley. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Follow it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and, for good measure, leave us a review. You can also follow The Hated and the Dead on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, so you never miss new content.